who presented his ministry in Ukraine, both to seminaries and local churches throughout Ukraine. During the Sunday school hour, he presented his ministry. Great privilege to have. Uh, we're thankful to have you with us, Jerry. Please come up and preach your word to us. of you. Uh, it's good to see the rest of you that were uh, in other parts of the building during the Sunday school hour and uh, really enjoyed the time to be able to just share a little bit of what God's been doing the last four years since we were here last time. I looked at my schedule for some reason I, I, I uh, have these folders and I just throw things in them and I actually had the bulletin that was used four years ago when I came here and it was, it was March 30th. So when I came last time, we were in this week 15, uh, and that's so a week afterwards will be four years since I was here. So you know what I mean by week 15. Okay. I can tell there's smiles on your faces. Uh, one shot makes all the difference, right? <laughs> okay. I'm not even a big year one. I'm a little year one fan, but I, I was when I woke up this morning and saw that I thought, oh, that's great. More madness. For those of you who weren't here, we uh, have a little table out there. If you have any questions about uh, ministry or you want to pick up prayer cards, uh, you can go out and put them up on the table. And if you want to sign up and get more information, we uh, try to send out quarterly newsletters. I didn't do very well this last year. I got so busy, I just became an annual newsletter. But this year, I'm, I'm trying to do a little better job. So if you're interested, we'll try to keep you up to date each quarter with just what's been going on and how you can become a faithful Christian. We uh, want to keep up with our ministry as well. By the way, my wife, I didn't get to introduce her because she was out at the table at the beginning of our Sunday school time. This is my wife, uh, Kelly, and she uh, she's been my wife as of uh, three months ago now. Uh, get this right, got to get it right. Uh, as of June 3rd, we'll have been married 40 years, so tell her it's And uh, she is a wonderful help me and uh, has been ministries I talked about this morning about the family and work for ministry, and she has grabbed that thing and taken over, so I could just do whatever she wants. She's got just one of many things that she does that affects this ministry. She has a place. She's got kind of a nanny and a mentor. She's been a wonderful lady, both with children and with us in the family. She's just, we're just doing there really what we've been doing all along. The only difference is it sounds Great to be back. This is a lovely place. I just love that lake and the Silver Lake Road. I mean, my mouth just dropped. I mean, my jaw just dropped when I saw it. It's just a spectacular place. We have lakes that go brown and yucky. And this, you know, around the seas, I was coming up here. Well, you can be turning in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 15. As we'll be looking at life's most important questions.
able to do some motherly things or grandmotherly things that she wasn't always good to do, but the Lord gives her an opportunity to bump into this coming one and serve him. And so she was there for three weeks. And these are, number seven's not in the picture because this picture was taken back a few months ago. And this is, uh, th- th- these are six of our seven grandchildren. And she was, I was just with them for a week and their life was never boring. A little, a little too romantic once in a while, but never, never boring. And we, we love to be with them. We love to see how how their children are pouring into their children and how they've grasped the significance that these are not just children. They are becoming adults. They are people that, that even uh, from a very early age understand who Jesus is and why he came and why they need to know him. And so much appreciated. So heartening to encourage and to be with them and to see how they're taking that to the school. But while we were with him, I see this picture, and there's a reason for this picture. It's not just that I'm the typical grandparent who's looking for sneaky ways to slip in pictures of their grandchildren. There's a point to this, and if you'll listen, you'll find out. <clears throat> One thing that we experience with our grandchildren and everybody does with children in general is that when they're young, they ask lots of questions. In fact, they're incessant in their questions, and if you're not careful and you fall into their ploy, you'll find that uh, one question only leads to more and more and more and more problems. And the reason is because children, they want to have all the answers. But as they get older, you begin to realize that it's more important to ask the right questions. If you're buying a house, if you're considering buying a car, particularly a used car, the person selling the house or the car to you may just try to convince you, oh, everything is perfect. Everything works just fine. But you know that it's wise to ask the right question, to find out the true condition of that house or that car. If you're a single person and you think you have strong desires toward a young man or a young lady, and you think you may want to marry this person, your friends and your parents will likely encourage you to ask the right question. Ten years later, that will be far more important than the color of her eyes or the smile on his face. Psalm 15, which was composed by King David, helps us with a very important question, which question is what is what is the most important question? It is a wisdom psalm, and asking the right questions is an important part of biblical wisdom. In fact, this psalm asks the very most important questions of your life. The psalm consists of three parts. There's, in verse 1, there's the question, and then in verses 2 through the first part of verse 5, it gives the answer or answers, and then last of all, there's sort of the end of the psalm, there's the promise. Father, as we look into this psalm, we ask that you would open our eyes and give us insight and understanding of what you're saying. Help us, Lord, not to just uh, let our eyes glide over the words or simply be content in understanding their meaning. But Lord, may the full intent of this psalm bore down in our hearts and may it help us to ask this question and then look for your answer. And Lord, we know that answer is a life or death thing. And we know that you 
scripture standing here because of your great love and concern for us to be able to answer those questions. So Lord, give us eyes and ears to hear you, to hear you, and to respond in due time. All right, let's look at the let's look at the psalm, and I'll read it. Uh, I'll read the, the five verses, and then we'll look at each verse individually this morning. Psalm 15, Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his servant. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not sin, who does not put money, put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And so we begin with a question in verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your dwelling? Who may inhabit your holy mountain? Some biblical scholars think that this psalm might have been something that Israelites used as they traveled to the annual feast in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And as they would ascend the mountain upon which Jerusalem and the tabernacle, later the temple, uh, were located, this question would have helped them to prepare to worship the Lord. These words, however, were not merely concerned with a person's behavior. During that worship time, they point well beyond that. To really understand this psalm, we have to look back for a moment to the book of Genesis, where God made Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden. This was not just a nice garden. You know, we all like to go garden to Michigan. We like to go picking strawberries. You know, later in the summer, we love tomatoes. This was not just an extraordinary garden. It was the place that God designed to dwell with man. The garden, in fact, was functionally speaking, it was the tabernacle, it was the temple, it was the place where God met with man. When God built the garden, he was building his house. He was building his house. He was building the place where he would engage with man. And it was a wonderful privilege to do so until, until Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Their sin ruined this relationship, and so they had to leave God's presence. You might even use the word exile. They were exiled from God's presence. That is, as a, again, a Western translation. Do you know what God did next? If you look at the picture on the slide behind me, you might recognize it. You know what that is? You know what that scene is? That's in Genesis chapter 3. God hosts a being, a creature. What is that creature? Cherubim. This cherubim is posted at the entrance to the garden, an entrance especially to the tree of life. And that cherubim has a flaming sword. In the Hebrew, the, the meaning of this word would suggest that this sword was not just like this. It was something going back and forth. It would be almost like walking through a vice belt. It was dangerous. It was a visible warning with deadly consequences for those who would ignore it. That's the picture. They're exiled from the garden. They cannot try to go back. If they go back, 
spiritually dangerous, spiritually lethal. Now, when I think of this account in, in Genesis chapter 3, it reminds me of part of the story we read to our children. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? That's a great, great story. That's a great story for children with lots of, of theological implications in that story. And I remember a question uh, raised by one of the characters, a young girl named Lucy. And she's asking another character, Mr. Beaver, about Aslan, the, the mighty lion who typifies Jesus Christ. Her question is this. Is he, referring to Aslan, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver answered, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. including you and me, lost the very thing for which they and we have been created, and that is to know God, to reflect the image, or to reflect His glorious image, and to enjoy a relationship forever with Him. But is that theme that we're looking at, is this the end? And the answer is no. God made a promise in that same chapter, a few verses before God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. He promised to save them from their lost condition. He promised to send a rescuer who would come from the seed of a woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. Years later, God called a man named Abraham, and he made a covenant with Abraham. He promised to make Abraham, his seed, into a great nation, and through this nation, he would bless all other Though sinful man cannot live in God's presence, God is already working right from the very beginning to fulfill the promise he made in Genesis 3.15. Later, God called a man named Moses to whom God showed his people what he's like and what he requires if we would come into his presence again. He promised to be their God. He promised that they would be his people, but there still was this problem. God is holy. God views the tabernacle and its laws of cleanness and sacrifice as graphic visual aids to teach them what it was necessary to live with a holy God. You might say the tabernacle is sort of a, a theology 101 course. What is God like? What must I be like with Him? This tabernacle demonstrated two things. Notice that if you go back and look at some of the uh, illustrations of what this is like, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel all arranged in a certain order that was given to them in the book of Exodus. Where is the tabernacle? It's in the very center of the tent. This tabernacle demonstrated two things. First of all, it revealed God's mercy and grace and His desire to restore a relationship with His people. But at the same time, secondly, it illustrated how man's sinful condition prevented him from having this up, this close-up relationship with God. Let me illustrate for you. Next, we'll go to the next slide. Here's a here's another. This is actually from the ESV Study Bible. This is sort of cut out view. 
tabernacle, and you could see all the, the, the outside, the outer court, or the outer area, and then, of course, it, it, it breaks down, you, you know, partially. And if you were to walk into this, uh, you would see all the doorpost furniture, the table of showbread, the candlestick, and then other things. And then from the back, you'd see this curtain. And we'll go to the next picture and give a kind of a different perspective on that. Here's, here's the courtyard, so to speak, in the front. There's this altar uh, burn offering, and then the lady where they would wash their hands. And then you walk into the tabernacle of a holy place with all these various pieces of furniture, all of which had significance, all of which typified something about God's rescue. So look at the back again. Can you see in the back? What do you have here? See that? That's a curtain, right? Now, what, what's, what, what's that curtain about? Well, let me just kind of illustrate it for you. Just make it really, really fast. Imagine that you lived in one of those tents that was real close to the entrance of that tent. In fact, your tent was one of the very places. You could you could get up in the morning and pull the flap back and look out, and there it was. Of course, most of the time, you, you could only go into a highly restricted area, only to bring a sacrifice at certain times, and you could not go inside that holy place. Only the priest could do that. And uh, behind the curtain was... Only one man could do that, only one day a year. You know what I'm talking about, right? The whole thing. We're talking about the day of atonement. Well, do you ever imagine what it must have been like to travel and have God always right in the middle of everything? And you could see his presence. You could see the, the essence of his presence. You could see the glory. There's this pillar of cloud by day, this pillar of fire at night. And then, You had a question. There is a girl three tenths down. You know what I'm thinking about? I think she's got real potential to be in that Yeah, I can do what God I know what I'm doing. Come on, I'm willing. I'd give up before anybody else. The priests won't even be up yet. They won't be there to say, no, you really shouldn't go in there that day. No, they would be. So you walk right by that altar of incense or a burnt offering. You go right by that lady. You go right into the entrance, and you're seeing this splendid place, all these gold-covered pieces of furniture, and there's the curtain. Behind that curtain, so you kind of make your way slowly. There is no opening the curtain, so you you try to pick it up by the bottom and kind of feel it out behind that curtain. Hello? God, are you, are you there? It's me. It's, it's Jerry. I got a... What would happen? Yeah? Anybody have any idea? You'd be dead. I mean, they even had provisions for the high priest. They'd wear these little bells on, on uh, around their robe, and if the bells stopped ringing, they had a rope attached to one of his legs, and it was time to pull him out. Something went wrong. He wasn't ready. Here we go. They didn't want to leave a high priest like that. It's serious business. You see, even that curtain was instructive. It wasn't just decorative. Did you notice what was on the curtain? Look at, look at that. There's an image on that curtain. Can you see it? Think back to that verse in Genesis 3 about the, the being, the form, the being of the garden. What was it called? Cherubim. 
And if you go to Exodus chapter 26 and verse 31, this is the instructions that God said regarding this curtain. He said, and I quote, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Do you know what that curtain is? Do you know what is sewn into that curtain and what it signifies? This is the entrance to God's presence. This is the cherubim at the entrance to the garden. You see the connection here? You see the picture here? This curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was a reminder to the Israelites of their past loss in Eden and its present God is again dwelling in your midst, but there are limitations. Holiness is not a luxury, it's a requirement, and furthermore, it is humanly impossible. The best they can do is maintain a state of cleanness. You can read all about this in the book of Leviticus. And even cleanness itself, which is only figurative of something even deeper in terms of the human condition, even that was a full-time job. If they lose this state of cleanness, like when they touched a dead animal or became infected with leprosy or any number of things, even, even normal bodily functions could render a person temporarily unclean. When that happened, what did they have to do? They had to go where? Outside the what? The camp until they became clean and could be uh, accepted back into the community. They had to go away from God's presence. Now, this sounds strange to us today, but it was, it was actually an amazing object lesson that was designed to bring home to them their sinful, internal condition. Now, wait a minute, I thought we were doing Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Let's get back to Psalm 15. We took a little detour there, detour there so you could appreciate what this psalm, the question is asking. Picture yourself around the year 1000 B.C., and you and your brothers and sisters are following your parents up this big hill where at the top there's this strange-looking tent with an altar in the front of a built helpless animal. And inside are various pieces of these gold plates and things that we just already saw in the picture. And near the back of that tent is the curtain, and behind that curtain is the presence of God. And you're thinking about this, and you're ascending the hill, of, the hill upon which Jerusalem is in the tabernacle of earth, and you're starting to feel a little bit more And suddenly your father turns around and he asks this question, who may abide in God's dwelling? Who may inhabit his holy mountain? Again, these words are not just simply a reminder, kids, be still for 45 minutes and don't embarrass they are designed for all people of all ages to ask themselves, themselves this question. Am I prepared to live in the presence of holy God? Or to put it in very simple terms, what kind of person must I be to live forever in God's presence? That's the question for this time. Let's look, again, very, we'll just look briefly at these answers in verses 2 through 5. 
And if you read these samples like we read a moment ago, you might have recognized that there are actually classes of examples of the Ten Commandments. He's not listing the Ten Commandments like <clears throat> like Moses does in Exodus chapter 20 or later as he repeats them in Deuteronomy. But they're examples, particularly of the second part of the Ten Commandments, that which relates to our uh, responsibility to each other or to other people. These, these answers show us what God expects from those who want to live with him forever. It's as if the author of David is saying, do you want to know what holiness really looks like, what it practically looks like? Here it is. Here it is for people then and people now. So let's look at them. And there's really four main areas here. And we'll just look at these areas and, and some descriptions in each area. The first is his inner character. The inner character of the person who would, want, who would, who would live with God. It's true. The first phrase that he uses there is he walks blamelessly. Now, what does that word mean? The word in the Hebrew means literally whole. It's a little different than some the way our version sometimes renders it. It means he's whole. In other words, a person who is wholehearted versus a person who is, can you think of the opposite of wholehearted? If I'm wholehearted, all I could do is what? Can you think of the word that James uses twice in the book of James? Double minded, wholehearted, double-minded. They're opposites. Uh, uh, another example of this, David, who, who's more than aware of his own propensity to have a divided heart or a double-minded heart, prays in Psalm 86. I think it's verse 11. Unite my heart, pull my heart together until it's got one focus, one priority, and that is to fear your name. That, you, see, you see what this what this, what this uh, phrase really means. In other words, what you say that you believe is what you're actually showing the practicing you don't have. Here's another, just an inventory kind of question. Do you talk one way at church? Do you have a sort of a church vocabulary or a church sort of conversation menu? And then you have a different menu, a different way of living, talking, acting in your daily life. You talk one way at church, and you're differently at home or school or work. Is there is there a consistency between the two? Came across this illustration, and this is very pertinent to this part of, of Michigan, particularly the place of Detroit. Road engineers will sometimes take a core sample of asphalt road to see what lies between what looks like a very hard surface and what's really going on underneath the surface. We have a problem in Ukraine. We have potholes. Um, I know you're laughing because you're saying, you think you've got potholes. Well, we, we do, and, and actually you do too. And I, uh, when I come back, my first question is, what's, the, what's 94 going to be like? What's 696 going to be like? And 94 was really good this time. It wasn't so good last time. Now it's good, and now 696 looks like it could use a little help. Okay. Well, in Ukraine, actually, we've got roads like that. I mean, we have some potholes that are so big you get lost in them. You can, you can just, you know, oh, where are we? I, I, we were driving in a road. Here we are. We're in a cave. No, it's a pothole. Um, and the reason for that, you know, weather has something to do with it, but also the quality of what's put down can be either high quality or it can be just get it down, get it on there, 
it out. And uh, you know, if you have poor quality, it may look good, but in a matter of weeks or months, it will crumble. And so they, uh, these, these road engineers will sort of drill down in and pull out a sample to find out if it's solid or if, in fact, what's really underneath is just crumbling and it won't last much longer. Here's a question using that figure uh, to ask yourself. If somebody did a poor sample on my card, what would that poor sample show? Is it a firm card or a crumbling card? Is it a double-minded card or a united card? That's what this is for. This is, this is important to God. This is what God is saying is necessary to have the kind of character that He is looking for and that is necessary to live in the life. Let's go on. Um, he does what is right. That's the next verse. In other words, he doesn't just know what's right. He's, he's actually pers- actively pursuing what pleases God. That which conforms to God's revealed standards. Are you a doer of the word? James Are you the wise man in Matthew 7 who hears and even writes down the notes from the sermon and even occasionally amens, but when he leaves, that's the end of it? Because the only thing that separates the wise man from the foolish man, they're both eager learners, they're both into hearing good teaching, but the, the only one word in the English separates the wise and foolish man. One does and one, one hears and does, one hears and does not. That's it. So this is a very, very heavy question. Am I a doer? Seeks the truth in his heart. We're still talking about inner character. The fool lies to himself, but the godly person speaks truthfully. Truth has to begin in your heart. Which means, are you are you spending time in God's Word and allowing it to shape your thinking and, and, and your decisions, or do you rely on your your own ideas and your own opinions? The bottom line is, if you don't if you don't live it, you don't believe it. That's the wisdom way of thinking. That's, that's not only the psalmist way of thinking, James would echo an amen. Then the psalm moves from inner character to how that character fleshes out in relationships with others. Notice in verse 3, does not slander with his tongue. Do you, do you say bad things about others when they're not present? James 4.11 says, do not speak evil of others. Gossip and slander have done great harm to believers over the centuries. And the psalmist here is warning, there is no place in heaven for people who slander. He does no harm to his neighbor. And so the example moves here from evil speech to evil action. Are you, are you kind? Are you good to your neighbor? Here, that neighbor is a very generic word. It's, it's not just the person you live next door to, it's the person you spoke to. It could be family, it could be friends, it could be brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's get practical. Do, do, do you return things when you borrow things? Do you respect the property of others? If you say, oh, I need, I, I need your cell phone, and I left mine at home. i got to call. It's really important. i got to call in sick today. <laughs> and, and, you, and you buy their cell phone, and in the process, you drop it, and it cracks the screen. And you say, well, I wonder how that happened. And you call it and say, here it is. And you don't offer to repair it. You don't offer to fix what you 
great suffering of the law is committed, and you probably make less than him. He does not take up a reproach against his friend. Are you a faithful friend? Do you return good for evil when a friend hurts or disappoints you? Disappoints you, or do you uh, try to get even? Do you try to solve problems biblically by humbly approaching them, or do you return good for evil, or evil for good? These are things that matter to God. Read, read Proverbs six. Uh, the end of the chapter, he talks about those very things, the things that God hates, and that it has to do with mixed feelings. In verse four, it, it, it moves into ulti- the third area, ultimate value. So it, it talks about his inner character in verse two. It talks about his relationships with others in verse three, and then his ultimate value in the beginning of verse four. In whose eyes a vile man is despised. Now this does not mean acting in a hateful manner toward those who oppose biblical ministry. It means rejecting their Lordship. On the other hand, but honors those who fear the Lord. The idea here is not so much how we treat people, but how we regard them. Who are the people you look up to? Who are your heroes? People who are, who are rich or famous or great athletes, even though their lifestyle is a mess, or people who sacrifice for others. Fathers who faithfully provide for their families. Mothers who are faithful in caring for and raising their children. People who give their lives and invest their lives in serving those in need. God tells us that the one whom he approves rejects a, a vile man, but honors those who fear him. And then he adds, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Now, this isn't talking about lost vows like Jephthah in Judges 11. I'll leave that up to Pastor Dan to explain that interesting thing. This is talking about trying to avoid keeping a commitment when you glibly volunteer to do something and then later find out, oh, wow, this is a whole lot more than I bargained for. The one whom God approves is willing to make sacrifices in order to keep Because he knows that when he makes a promise, God's reputation is at stake. So the practical question, do you keep your commitments even when it's not easy? And then another one, in the, the last area, and this has to do with money. His money and God's reputation. And this is in verse, verse 5. He lends his money without interest. Now, you know, a little background here. The Bible was not opposed. God's word was not absolutely opposed to uh, interest, charging interest. That was not, in the absolute sense, condemned in the Bible. It was condemned when it involved taking advantage of somebody in a desperate situation by charging them a high rate of interest. Uh, so if somebody in need, they ask, they ask for help, and you say, here, I'll give, I'll give you $100. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, by the way, next week there'll be a little interest charge. Well, how much? Oh, just send me back $200, no problem. That's gouging. That's, 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 uh, that's, that's inhumane. But that, that happens, and it continues. Near, you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 5, where the richer citizens charge their brothers high interest just to get food. And, and, and people re, re, even had to resort to using their children as collateral. They would put them into, into, into bondage just to be able to keep life in themselves. And then it goes on to say, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. 
The person whom God approves is not motivated by greed and the desire to accumulate wealth, but by justice and the well-being of his people. You need to read about that. Paul has a great discussion on that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, particularly the latter half. He talks to the rich people about where they reevaluate that issue. The question here is, do you use money to serve others, or do you use people to help you gain money and service? And then David, after the answer, concludes with the promise. He who does these things will never be needy. He is secure because he is safer in God. So now now our time's a little inventory checklist. I meant to ask you earlier, but I'll ask you now. How do you feel about this? How did you do? I mean, did you just go through and go, yep, got that one, yep. Got that one. Yep, got that one. Okay, next. Is that, did it really go that well? Can I be honest with you? There are days when I read a text like this and it causes my heart to sink into the ground. What? You, you, you're, you're opposed to, 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 to the norms that God prescribes for those who would live in his presence? No, I'm honest about myself. I don't see myself many times when I look at this passage. What I'm saying is this, if we're really honest, we really know deep down inside we do not live up to this standard. Probably not in in the letter of the law, or many times certainly not in the spirit of the law. And some days, maybe not even close. Who was this one? David. Did he always live up to this standard? Ask Uriah about it. Probably not. Ask Bathsheba about it. Ask his kids about it. No, David, David had some obvious shortcomings. Yes, he was the man after God's own heart, but even he, the one who wrote this song, he understood its implications. He realized he and himself could not and did not in any way consistently live up to it. In fact, no one has perfectly lived this song. perfectly blameless, always righteous, and completely genuine in his thoughts and motives. Only Jesus never sinned in the way he spoke. Only Jesus had pure convictions that he never once compromised. Only Jesus kept all of his commitments, even to the point of dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. Only Jesus has always valued people over money and service. So what good is this for anyone here then? Well, this is God's law. And God's law, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, But this morning, as we contemplate this song, we're not just asking the right questions, we're asking life's most important question. Who can live with God forever? When we look at this song through the lenses of the gospel, we understand that the characteristics which this psalm describes are not those that God finds in a person, but they're those that God creates in a person by His grace. Apart from Jesus, we deserve, even the best of us on our best days, we deserve to hear the words, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. 
And yet Romans 5, 19 says that by one by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus fully lived up to Psalm 15, and he lived his life to provide a righteousness that cannot be earned or deserved. And then what happened? He one day went outside the tent to bear our sin and our uncleanness by his substitutionary death on the cross. The benefits of which are available for those who trust in him. By grace, through faith in Jesus, those who fall short of God's righteousness are viewed by God the Father as though this psalm describes them. This is how we are made right with God. This is how God finally removes the curtain that we see erected in Genesis 2, typified in, in, in the book of Exodus, and illustrated here in Psalm 15. He removes the curtain that separated sinners like you and me from Him. He walked into and bore the death that we deserve so that we could not endure forever apart from him. If you turn to Jesus and trust in him today, you will be given a new status that allows the Father to welcome you into his presence forever. And then, and this is the, this is the good news isn't just that he'll forgive you, then he will begin to make you more and more like the one who lived and died for you. And so the real question for today is this, have you trusted to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? You put your faith and hope in Christ and the sinless life and the atonement that He has I'm sitting here saying, and I, I believe I have, then I would say to you, let this text probe your heart to show you your ongoing need to preach the gospel to yourself. A gospel that not only offers forgiveness and imputed righteousness, but a gospel that transforms and motivates you to pray to be like the one who lived and died for you. And then one day, you will be a new creature. Welcome. Welcome to my house. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your Thank you that you made us to be like you. And you told us everything we needed to know to live with you. And all of that was gained when Adam and Eve sinned against you and you in your Thank you, Father, that even then, the same word that spoke us into existence, told us everything we needed to maintain that existence, now spoke in to our lives the word of life to our hearts. And may that word be the word to live in. Thank you for sending us. Thank you. Thank you for providing through him and in him all that we need to be made right with you. All that we need to live in your new Eden again. And so, Father, we pray that you know our hearts. And we pray for your spirit to speak to fill your need to us. To make sure that we're saving you, going to 
abiding in Christ, and they are then able to bear more and more fruit that resembles and preaches what we will one day become when we will be with Him and we will be in heaven with Him. Thank you, God, for your goodness. And may we forget.